This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings. Bill, we have a fantastic show today. Why don't we get right to our guest? Yeah, we will. But first, I got to say, go Navy, beat Army, because it is Army-Navy week. I was negligent in not saying go Navy, beat Army. <laughs> I'm wearing my N-Star <laughs> shirt here. That's right. See? So now we've now we've said it, and now we'll introduce our fantastic guest. So we're super excited and honored today to have as our guest the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General David Berger, who is the 38th Commandant of the Marine Corps. And uh, we're going to be talking about a, a few different things with him, but starting uh, the focus will be on his Proceedings article that was in the November issue of Proceedings, which was titled, Marines Will Help Fight Submarines. So General Berger, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So Commandant Holt, before you go, Bill, let, let me give you my Marine Corps bona fides. I was raised by a Marine Corps attack pilot. Um, went to Havelock High School. I lived on board at Cherry Point, 310 Jefferson Drive. And my son is a reserve Marine, combat engineer. He's a uh, company commander down at the Roanoke unit. And I saw in your bio that you had been stationed at Roanoke as well. So I, I have Marines all around me. I, I chose poorly, obviously, as, as going Tomcats in the Navy. Had a great time. but uh, Family business sounds like. Absolutely, yes. So uh, coming out last year in 2019, you wrote a, a piece about force design in the uh, November issue of proceedings. At, at that time, you were just a few months into your job. And uh, the, the crux of that article was about how the Navy and the Marine Corps together were going to have to design the future force. Uh, and then in this year, you, you, you really knocked our socks off. We were uh, hoping to have something from you. We get this article from uh, you and your staff. And uh, we start reading it, and we're like, wow, the Marines are going to fight submarines. Okay, this is an interesting conversation. And a lot of our readers have been very excited about it as well. So um, just 30,000-foot level, uh, talk to us a little bit about this article and about what the thinking is behind you know, expeditionary advanced base operations and the role that the Marine Corps could play in an anti-submarine warfare fight. Uh, thanks, uh, first, uh, Bill, for the intro. Uh, also, thanks for both y'all's continued work for the Proceedings Magazine. That's where the uh, the higher-level dialogue takes place, and uh, that's why uh, we, we drafted that article to send to you, because I think it spurs good, healthy, professional discussion. So if it's okay with y'all, I'll talk perhaps for about just five, four, five, six minutes to explain what's not in the, in the, in the print part, and then we can go in whatever direction you'd like to go. For background, I think, uh, in other words, how to, how to frame this, I think most people probably have read Simon Sinek's uh, different writings. The one I'll relate to is uh, start with why. So I thought I would start with why. That's where a good place for me to begin. There's actually four or five whys for this article. So if you'll um, allow me, I'll start off first with uh, number one. 
And number one reason why the article and why this topic is actually in law, it's Title 10. These are the foundational references for all the services. And for us, it's in writing. It's very clear that the Marine Corps will be organized, trained, and equipped to provide uh, fleet Marine forces of combined arms together with supporting air components for service with the fleet. And then it goes on, talks about advanced naval bases and the conduct of such land operations, et cetera, et cetera. And at the end of that, it says, in the prosecution of a naval campaign, which is important. Those, those handful of words are really important. In other words, the why is the why for this, the why for anti-sub warfare, why or why do you have a fleet marine force is to support naval campaigns and naval campaigning. So for that reason, I think that's why when we when we were writing the article, it begins in the in the very first uh, sentence or two about a, a description. It's not about expeditionary advanced bases or our force design, but it's really a, the the first couple sentences lean hard into naval expeditionary forces and how EABO can facilitate a campaign, a naval campaign. So I think naval campaigning needs a lot more attention, a lot more thinking, and a lot more writing. And how we develop and how we sequence and how we execute naval operations in a campaign, that's that's a big driver for how we get to sea control or sea denial, or to project power, or to secure sea lines of communication, or pretty much anything else. And all this in the framework of a near peer or a peer competitor. So that's the reason number one. Reason number two, um, looking forward. I think we need to ask how naval campaigning can both preserve and enable our, 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 our advantages. And when I say advantages, I mean our operational and strategic advantages. I think traditional power projection, the way we think, have thought of it for the past 40 or 50 years, that's given us a great advantage. However, the rise of uh, precision strike regime, as, as a bunch of other people have written, we owned it for a long time, a huge advantage in that area, but now peer competitors have closed that gap. So now it's sort of a level playing field in terms of precision strike. But the one area where the naval force has still maintains a fairly sizable strategic advantage under sea warfare, my opinion. And, and others, which uh, which I, I think is pretty straightforward. So if that's true, if we have a large margin there in advantage undersea and we need to sustain that, then I'm thinking through how does the fleet marine force maintain, help maintain that advantage and perhaps grow it? And I think the answer is we're going to use expeditionary advanced operations to do that, EABO to do that. And that takes me to number three. So for number three, well, we've talked for a few years now about expeditionary advanced base ops, EABO. For several years, I think uh, a lot. some of that was classified. Some of it uh, wasn't published in the open. So because we couldn't talk about it widely at an unclassed level, I think people started to develop their own ideas of what it was and what it wasn't. And that the, my learning over time is unless something's published in the unclassed realm and widely disseminated, then people are going to form their own descriptions of it. So now that took us to an area where people thought of, well, where are the commandants going is a bunch of little tiny Marine units that are running around with some kind of lethal batteries and um, kind of modern day defense battalion sort of thing. Uh, and they wouldn't, they, and they were somehow going to support the fleet and it created this mental model that became kind of an anchor point for us. 
or an anchor, not an anchor point. Who all I, my third point here, in other words, is I'd ask folks to stretch out their brains a bit and, and think of EABO much wider than that. I think a huge aspect of how we're going to use EABO going forward is is how we're going to how we're going to what the naval what the naval force might call scouting and counter scouting or the army calls reconnaissance and counter reconnaissance same idea and i think what uh, general stewart general vince stewart who's a peer of mine just retired a couple years ago he's, his description of the mo- part of the most important aspect is we need to be able to rapidly sense make sense of and enact on information so i think that's what our forces are going to do the expeditionary naval forces are going to do. They're going to have advanced sensing capability forward, and we don't have it yet. Some of that on the surface, some of that under the surface, and some of that in the air. And we're experimenting with all that now, so that sort of takes me to number four. What What is naval expeditionary forces? What is that going to look like in the future? I think in the past you would have thought of opposed forcible entry, like a big amphibious landing. That's not where we're headed. Um, the, you, you mentioned the article a year ago. I think for deployed naval expeditionary forces, we're going to organize, train, and equip them to compete in in the maritime gray zone and help contribute towards this, scout, this scouting, counter-scouting sort of competition every day, every week. And those same forces, Navy plus Marine Corps, have to be able to transition from competition to crisis because we're not going to be able to pull out one force and put in another. You know, my, my assumption is going forward, those forward forces have to be the ones who respond as well immediately. And all that is to, in order to either sanitize some kind of maritime space that's being, being challenged or create sea denial somewhere or respond to a crisis. And again, all this in the framework of deterrence and potentially de-escalation. And that brings me to probably the point last, number five. So there, if all that's true, why ASW? Why anti-submarine warfare? And I think that probably a fair amount of folks, my peers and re- retired community included, scratched their heads and wondered why, why would the commandant write about undersea warfare? I think um, the first four should help inform what, the why part of that. Yeah, this is a bit of an intellectual stretch for, for some. And some may think it's not realistic for the fleet marine force to. Why would you even go into anti-sub warfare, or a, how would you? Why would you have a future Arg Mu kind of with Tago ship, and why would you employ ASW type capabilities? And that I, I think that's closed-minded. I am pushing folks to think wider, to elevate, to think in a non-conventional, non-traditional way. I'm not. Not asking them to, to go into science fiction, but this is reasonable. Move beyond, the, in other words, the traditional comfort level and your sort of intellectual boundaries. Visualize how the fleet marine force can contribute to a naval to a naval campaign. And that's where proceedings, back to proceedings, I think is such a great venue because folks write in there in order to challenge the way that we're our kind of pre-existing mental models. The, it's a great form for for how to do that and broaden our thinking in terms of naval forces. So that's that's kind of the whole purpose of the article. It's, it's not in paper. Sure. Thanks. Well, I appreciate that you appreciate the dialogue that happens within proceedings because yeah. uh, you know, that's that's what we're all about, right, and have been for almost 150 years. You know, a, a year ago it, when you were starting to this talk about naval integration 
and building the future force. Um, the article that was just after yours in the 2019 November issue was by Major Brian Kerg, who won the Marine Corps essay contest for us uh, last year. And his article was titled, What does the Navy want from the Marine Corps? And so last week, uh, Defense Forum Washington, you and the CNO were together uh, answering questions about naval integration, among other topics. Um, so how how is that going? How is the, as you start to think about, okay, you know, Fleet Marine Force, and naval campaigning together, um, where, what, what kind of successes are you having, and where, uh, how, how well integrated are the efforts between your staff and the CNO? I think when we talk about naval integration, I break it down into as you, you kind of hinted at different levels. At the headquarters level, the op nav staff, the, the CNO staff, and the commandant staff. How well is that going? I would say in the last three or four years, especially the last two or three, um, huge steps forward. And I think there was not animosity before, but frankly, for the last 20, 30 years, we didn't we didn't have to work together. Now we have to. There's a driver, in other words, external to the Navy and the Marine Corps, and it's not Congress or a budget. It's a threat. So I think the driver is. If you don't, we, we none of no single service is going to be able to dominate going forward. You've got to find strengths in the Department of Defense that are affordable to maintain this margin. Well, I think it's driving us to work together. It helps that we get along great, but that's not the basis for uh, naval integration. So I think fiscally, we're not being surprised the the Marine Corps or the Navy by you know last minute changes to a budget or something like that. It's not happening anymore. The learning, the education part, we got a long way to go there, but um, we're headed in the right direction at the service level. The biggest, the biggest advancements are at the tactical level, at the numbered fleet and the numbered MEF level. They're not waiting for any detailed guidance, nor nor should they. And we gave them to see Mike and I, the CNO and I talked beforehand, saying there's not a one size fits all here. We should allow Seventh Fleet to work with three MEF and and uh, one MEF to work with Third Fleet, we should allow them to kind of build whatever naval integration works for them at their level. So don't don't try to fit. Here's the template. You have to do this equals naval integration. Allow them to sort out what works best. Last level, I would say really important level is uh, at the at the component level, like Pack Fleet, Mar 4 Pack. Here again, I think huge strides forward. That, that will probably look different than it does in Europe or it does in the Middle East. But that's okay. We should be okay with that. So you were talking about, Commandant, that you now have to work together in the tactical situation, maybe for the previous 15, 20 years, didn't force the Marine Corps and the Navy to work together. So is that specifically we're talking about um, enduring freedom, Iraqi freedom, kind of a Camp Leatherneck construct? Is that is that what it was? It, I mean, obviously, in some cases, a mu would get there. You'd disembark and you'd hang out for the duration of the float at places like Leatherneck, um, and and probably with little to no. Maybe there'd be some on call CAS, um, but otherwise, you'd have V22s and rotary wing uh, assets with you at Bastion, and you didn't really need the Navy. Is is that what you're speaking to? Uh, we're close. I, well, I think that's a portion of it. But I think it goes beyond beyond that. When I say we didn't really need each other, <clears throat> what I mean is we didn't have competition 
We didn't have an adversary that was close to us. We had so much overmatch in the in the air realm, in uh, on the surface, certainly uh, subsurface. The Marine Corps didn't. There was nobody close to us for 70 years. Now you could compare the Cold War period to the first Cold War period to now, and I don't think that's a fair comparison. But capability-wise, there was nobody close. So there was no driver for the two of us to have to work together closely. Now, I think either money or an opponent, either one of them are pretty hard driving factors. So part of it was that our primary focus was the Middle East. But I think also, and I don't lose sight of the fact, we had such a margin of advantage for so many decades. You can, you can pretty much go where you want to go, do what you want to do, when you want to do it, when you have that, that kind of advantage. That, that gap has closed. It's forcing us to work together more naval and more joint. Sir, back to your uh, article, your, your this year's article about a- ASW, Marines fighting submarines. So um, has that um, that idea, has that spawned any movement towards specific procurement options, towards exercises with the Navy? You mentioned in the article a lot about maritime patrol and reconnaissance aircraft, about, you know, the Navy's P-8s, for example, having to operate perhaps in places where the uh, you know, the standard airfields like ADAC maybe or like Keflavik are under some threat. And so they've got to move those MPRA aircraft somewhere else and the Marines can create a uh, an expeditionary airfield for them. Has, have any of those ideas started to play out in, in exercises or in concepts for things that might come in, in 2021 or 2022? They have. And uh, I'll look at it, for, uh, maybe try to describe it through a couple lenses. There, there are some element of, of course, that uh, it is in a different classification level that we would want to talk in a different form. But in the unclass level, um, from from the blue side, from the U.S. side, I would say both in capabilities. First of all, we're not trying to replicate. We're not thinking about replicating or substituting for what the Navy does really, really well right now. This is how do you add to it? So if we can contribute in a way that, to your point, as simplistic as rearming, refueling forward station, forward operating units, okay, that's one. Um, but also sent the sensing part, the collection part. If we have marine units that are distributed around a, a pretty spread out environment, is there a way they could collect on the subsurface picture and contribute to the overall uh, subsurface fight, undersea fight? Maybe, maybe yes. So although some would think immediately, well, what kind of weapon system are we talking about? My first thought is, how do you paint a picture, a better, more complete picture for the fleet commander? Because he can't have a submarine and uh, his P-8s everywhere. So how do you, how, is there a way where marine units could complement, could add to that undersea picture? And if we can, and the adversary knows that we can, Okay, now we can start to change their behavior. Now they can't operate everywhere with impunity. They have we're sort of herding them into where we where we would like them to go now. Same communications wise. So in some set from our 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 view, how do we add to? How do we complement what the Navy already does very well? And from the other side, how do the, how do we change their perception that they can as long as they stay away from the U.S. submarines and the U.S. P.H.s? We're we're free and clear. How do we change that? mental model to make him think 
my God, there's these Marine units spread all over the place and they're going to know where they're going to, they're going to pick up where we're moving. So just to pony on Bill's question there on your watch, there's been a number of folks in the various secretariat positions, um, which has made it potentially challenging to land on whether it's a ship count or, you know, sort of the program of record has been in flux. Just just put it that way. Um, So like Bill is saying, you know, whatever you're talking about in terms of a future mission area, it's kind of the no bucks, no buck Rogers kind of a thing, right? So if it doesn't reflect in an NDAA and a program of record, then it's just us talking or you talking at, you know, Defense Forum Washington or West, right? And, And so how are you, never mind the next... 50 days. Uh, let's say once things settle down in the next administration, um, how are you feeling like you're going to be postured with respect to the NDAA and the program of record for things like particularly the light amphibious warfare, warship idea? Well, I think we're in really good shape. Uh, I say that because we thought our way through it with with uh, Admiral Gilday and his staff on both the logistics side and the light amphibious warfare Tried to, we had first thought of before we went talked outside the family about it, how do we how do we going to understand this and describe it to your point in a way that can be resourced. The way we paint a picture of is you have this kind of vessels that get you to the fight and in a high end um, they're survivable. That's what you use to punch through. That's what you use to land forces when you need to. Okay, so you got those. But what we don't have right now that we're going to need is in a, in a contested environment every day, every week. How are we going to move supplies, reposition forces, keep them sustained? So that drives you towards a class of more affordable ships that are smaller, lower signature. Okay, that's, that's what we don't have today. So they don't take the place of an LHA or an LPD. But with a sweep, now you can move those naval forces all over the place pretty not easily, but a lot with, with more mobility than you have today. I think the discussions with Congress over the past six or eight months brought that uh, to light. There's no that I've seen in the last two, three months, not one opposing view about you guys really don't need this uh, this new light um, um, logistics ship, you don't, uh, uh, this combat logistics fleet, I mean, we don't, we don't see any need for that, or we don't see a need for a light amphibious warship. There's a clear acceptance now that the game is about deterrence and competition every day, every week. And that means we're going to have to have more than the few dozen amphib ships to, to be able to really compete on, on a scale and in a kind of a gray zone environment that we're going to have to. I'm, I'm optimistic. I, I think we're in a good place. Do you think um, it's possible for U.S. shipyard, ship company, you know, shipbuilding companies to uh, to build some of those uh, light amphibious warships or smaller warships for an, at an affordable price? I mean, this has been a problem in the last 20, 30 years is that the, the price escalation on platforms has been really problematic. Right. You know, OK, we're going to build. Uh, littoral combat ship, for example, and then the price tag ends up, you know, uh, outrageous. We're going to build Zumwalt-class destroyers. Those things end up being billions of dollars per copy. So how, how do you how do you get at that problem about, hey, we need some capability. We need some capability that is smaller, um, that gives us 
uh, a, a, you know, a suite of capabilities, for example, that isn't just dependent on these, you know, 30 something, you know, large amphibious warships. But how do you control the, the cost so that you actually end up with enough of them at the other end of the program? None of this is, I'm going to say, is a surprise to you all. You all know this topic really well also. I think first, we before we, before we uh, come down hard on a shipyard for boosting the price on something, we got to look inside. We got to look, in, look with a little introspection to find out, did we change the requirements over time? And we did. Of course we did. We asked for the budget model, you know, Camaro. And then uh, by seven years later, we want every bell and whistle that's possible bolted onto that thing. So we have to discipline ourselves when it comes to developing requirements and then refining them over the build to, to be, we have to be reasonable to stay, to keep up with technology and stay up with an adversary, but we cannot keep expanding our wish list into a requirements thing that drives the price through the roof. So we got to discipline ourselves. We do, however, have to work closely, I think, with the large shipyards like Huntington Ignals and, and the rest of them to work on the supply chain, the depth of the supply chain we're going to need going forward. Because it's in some places it's more fragile than it than it ought to be, where there's a single source. And man, if that, you know, we have a problem with that mom and pop shop in Idaho, we're in trouble because they're the only ones that make the impeller on that pump. And if if they have a problem, we're 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 not in a good place. So we have to broaden, deepen the the uh, supply chain. Lastly, I would say is not either us or the or the shipyards. This is predictable, predictable funding. If if they don't have that, and you, if you or I or or, or Ward were running a shipyard, and we can't give them any any confidence in the two, three, five, seven year outlook, I'm not sure why they would hire a whole bunch of workers and expand their shipyard either. So they need from they need some predictability from Congress. We can put together a shipbuilding plan, but what they really need is the resourcing confidence to say, okay, that's the plan. We're going to buy that. And for 10, 15 years, we're heading down that road. But I think all three, the service, the, the, the Department of Defense got to be more disciplined in requirements. The shipyards got to expand the supply chain. But then the, both of us need a predictable, forecastable funding model that allows you know, long-term investment in, in the shipyard and the labor pool. So that's the lawmaker side of the triangle. Um, how's your confidence in in their getting what you're talking about and their committing to what you're talking about? It's hard to tell going into this Congress. Of course, we'll wait and see in January, February, March, you know, with this next Congress, kind of where their priorities are and where they have to tighten their belt or feel like they need to tighten their belt and pay what kind of bills. I don't really know yet. My reading on it and listening is that there is a sense that the the largest threats that face the U.S. are going to be in a maritime domain. We need a large enough naval force to handle that going forward. In other words, the 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 predominant existential threats are in the maritime kind of space. That requires a, a sizable enough Navy and Marine Corps to deal with that. So. I, I think there's an appetite for it. Yes, I think there's a sense on both parties. We need a strong enough navy to do that. Uh, how big a navy? How many ships? We'll see. But I'm in, in that regard. Qu although quantity, capacity definitely matters. 
I think the CNO's point last week about let's not just talk about a specific number of ship. It's what capability and readiness, you know, that's that's part of the answer, too. Let's talk about aviation real quick, uh, Commandant. So you've been operating the F-35B for some time now. And I know we just IOC'd the first uh, C squadron. Um, so three of my deployments were with Marine Corps squadrons in the air wing, A6s, Prowlers, and, and Hornets. Um, I cruised both as a department head and as CAG ops with VMFA 251. The T-Bolts, fantastic guys, super professional, brought a lot raised the bar in the air wing with respect to mission planning, execution, so forth and so on. So huge fan of having a Marine Corps fixed wing squadron, tail hook Navy, tail hook Marine Corps. So what do you see? Because obviously there's a give take going forward in the budget world that we were just talking about. What do you see as the priority of fixed wing carrier based Marine Corps squadrons against all the other demands on time budget training i think uh, right now there i have not heard and i'm not driving any big change in the discussion of carrier-based marine aviation we have a good solid agreement right now and although the world could change i think right now our program of record for b's and c's is is a is a solid one I think going forward you know once we start deploying them on carriers then we'll learn a lot more about what they can do on and off the carrier while deployed. And I, I don't, there's a lot of room, a lot of good ground to, to plow into there. I think the overall program by for the Marine Corps, we're looking at right now internally to the, as we reshape the Marine Corps to see how many exactly of what type are we going to need for the Marine Corps of the future, not the Marine Corps today, but the one in the future. But the ability to operate um, together as a naval force really powerful. I mean, you're a living example of it. Like this is this, nobody does it better than the, that tag team on an aircraft carrier. The last part. So I, I don't think anybody's close to us there, nor approaching us there. And we should we should be mindful of that big, huge advantage maritime air that we have. That's not a small. That's kind of like the undersea one. It's a huge, big advantage. There's one other aspect, I suppose, that uh, we'll have to sort through going forward, and that's the, you know, the, the sustainment part, the maintenance part of that aircraft as a naval expeditionary force, which is hard enough on any kind of aircraft. F-35, you know, we'll have to learn going forward as the, as the Navy embarks them on carriers. And the last, the last part I'll say we'll have to sort through going forward is this whole notion of a light carrier and what that might mean and you know, I don't know where that one will go, but that's good Good dialogue, good discussion, some fresh ground to plow going forward also. What, what does that mean? Do you see any on, on that topic of uh, the light carrier? We've had probably six or eight articles in proceedings the last couple of years on that topic and, you know, the the strengths, weaknesses of a light carrier versus an Nimitz or a Ford class carrier and tonnage and all those things. Um, but uh, anything coming in the next year in terms of experimentation with that concept of what what kinds of things can you do with a light carrier or LH, you know, LHA type um, with F-35s, uh, with more F-35s, fewer helicopters, with, you know, what, what kinds of things are, are maybe coming in terms of 
thinking through that that concept and the capabilities there. Uh, just a couple thoughts on that, Bill. I think first, as I mentioned last week in the, when the CNO where I were talking, when you don't have something now and you're trying to figure out what its utility might be going forward, one way to one way to start to sort through that is use a surrogate. It may not be that thing, but we could could we use an, an LHA that we have right now as a sort of a surrogate for a a, car- a light carrier, even though that's may not be exactly what we're looking for. Could we try? Could we experiment with that? I think, yeah, absolutely we could. That doesn't mean that it has to have a well deck and be a full up amphib. But if if you want to learn, then you pick something close and you treat it as a surrogate and you put it into exercises and stuff and see how it does. So I think we can learn pretty quickly um, the value of it and how it contributes into the overall campaign but that takes me to the second point my second point which is we'll have to we need to avoid the trap of looking at one platform at a time and trying to say you know what should that platform be like how much do we want to spend on that platform how many if this is all about giving a fleet commander a capability so before we look at a type of ship or how many we should look to the fleet commanders and the mef commanders go how does this basket of capabilities make you fight make you compete better so we had sergeant major troy black on the show a couple of months ago uh, and we were talking to him about manpower Um, how are you feeling for the force structure in terms of manning in the out years are you feeling like you're getting necked down a little bit are you are you good with the the growth targets how you like and your potential to recruit in this environment let's talk manpower a little bit yeah, um, we're here. The Marine Corps is on a different track than the other services. My assumption beginning last summer was we're not going to have climbing uh, budgets. We're not going to have more money. So if you need to modernize, if you need to reshape yourself for the future, you got to do it from from within. And our money, our money is in people. So we are getting smaller, not growing. We're getting smaller in order to pay for a more modern, better trained Marine Corps. Now, nobody likes to do that. No service chief ever wants to have a smaller anything. But I saw no other way to get where we need to get. So we're going to we're going to contract some. We should be okay with that. It'll be a better Marine Corps, just a little bit smaller. So uh, as far as recruiting, um, I'm optimistic there. Retention, we have to focus more on keeping the right Marines and not losing the talent that we spent four or five, 10 years training. So we have to really, I think, double down on the retention part. Make sure that commanders and senior enlisted leaders are involved and we have to empower them to pick the right people to retain. So right now our system's really kind of top, top down driven. I think we need to give more authorities, more power down to the commanders to make decisions on things like retention. I'm, opti- I'm optimistic as far as the overall force. That said, Ward, we have to, we, we're, it's, it's a never ending battle to keep the real talent in the ones that take a long time to train cyber F 35 air crews, maintainers and attack air community. There's communities there that man, you, you know how long it takes to, to, to make a QDR. It takes a long time to get to the qualifications you need in a, in a E four E five on, you know, working on an aircraft carrier or a big deck. And then they leave because we're, we're, we have, not figured out in all cases how to keep them 
we got to work really hard on the communities that it's difficult to retain because they're very they, it's easy to get a job, you know, on the outside with all that training and all those qualifications. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other driver or the other pressure on on retention is the op tempo piece. Um, and I think COVID is kind of giving us this false sense of people aren't going to leave when we keep breaking records on deployments and so forth. You know, so how are you feeling about about that in terms of the op tempo per tempo ratio? Do you have any concerns that uh, we're we're using the same folks too often to meet the markers out there in the world? I have in the past. Uh, we're we're getting to a better place in the Marine Corps right now because of temporary ad hoc missions that we've done for several few years. We're now backing out of and. Um, with the support of the Secretary of Defense kind of leveling out our tempo to where we can train and we can turn the force around, uh, go back out on deployment at the level you would want them. There are still some units and some specialties, to your point, that are pretty pressed. This is this gets at the heart of, uh, you know, what, what the Pentagon calls global force management, but the, the deployment of units and how frequent and, and uh, to your point, like what you hit on award, the extensions of units that seem like so harmless. Like, why can't you just leave that carrier or that amphib just one more month, just 30 days? You know, what's the harm? But you do that over and over and over again. There's a cumulative effect. Yeah. Can we do it one time? Absolutely. Can you do it for year after year after year? Well, there's a price to be paid for that. So I'm I like the CNO very, very focused on things like extensions of deployments right now. This sound like it's an easy one-off. What's the harm? Because they don't pay the price. The combatant commanders need the force, and they want this, the confidence that that a, that a, that a carrier you know, air group or a, or a amphib an ARG or a MU. They like that that blanket of safety, but it comes at a cost. Back to the services. That's why you're asking the question. It comes at a cost. So related to the the manpower question uh, is. Uh, on education. So in, in 2019, there was this big push for this thing called education for sea power, you know, because of some personality changes at the top, we, we you know, that sort of petered out for a bit. Um, but what, what kinds of changes do you see happening on the both officer and enlisted side in terms of educating to, to, to keep those, you know, very talented Marines and to make them, you know, the, the most capable that they can be, whatever whatever rank they are, whether it's, uh, you know, the strategic corporal or the, you know, the iron majors, uh, to, so that they have that, um, you know, intellectual overmatch uh, against their adversaries. Here, I'll thank uh, my predecessor long, long ago, who um, our day of reckoning in the Marine Corps came a couple decades ago when it was clear we we could either keep skipping professional military education and do it sort of ad hoc wise, or we could discipline ourselves and make it a part of what we're doing. Now, ever since for the past couple of decades, you are not promotable. You cannot advance without professional military education. You're, you're not not qualified. So it was a hard step for us to take a couple of decades ago, and I'm really it has paid off for us over over the last 20 years. We are we don't we have to go to school in order to advance. So it's not looked at as a nice to have. Well, if there's time, you know, I'd, I'd really like to, but my not in my field, not in my community right now. You can't move. You can't move up in the Marine Corps unless 
that was a huge forcing function for us. We benefited from it. How we educate, though, the second part, I would say we got a lot of room to improve. We're still largely stuck in the model of all three of us go to school. We report on this date. We sit in that chair. And then seven weeks later, we all graduate. No matter who's moving faster or slower, it doesn't matter. Well, no college, nobody educates like that anymore, except for the military. So we have to change how we educate, how we train. We have to we have to bring it into the 21st century and how we learn as an organization, because we are largely still stuck in an industrial age sort of mentality that we're going to go at the pace of the slowest learner, no matter what. We got to do a lot better than that. We're talking to you on Microsoft Teams. Normally, if this was a non-COVID environment, we'd be sitting in in the outer office there with you. Um, how have you adjusted to the COVID environment with respect to going out to the fleet for hands across the water and addressing groups of Marines in uh, downrange? And what are your concerns about the way you've been forced and that the Marine Corps has been forced by the COVID protocols? Uh, there's no question. It's, it's forced us to tailor, to your point, our travel. It's forced, it's made huge adjustments in the Pentagon. And, and uh, each step, you know, when it flares up, you take a half a step back and tighten up the screws a little bit more. And it, But you can operate through that in this building. I, I, I think, uh, Ward, your point about the, the importance of senior leaders traveling so that they can listen so that they can get a sense of how things are, man, you can't put a price tag on that. We have continued to travel. Um, went to Japan two weeks ago for 10 days. So our major was down traveling through this southeast of U.S. last week. We've continued to travel, but you clearly got to do it in a different way. And there's a whole sequence of protocol testing that goes along with it. But even then, it's still tough to get the same kind of uh, interface that, you know, interaction that you would with a lot of groups uh, and so that you can listen and they can ask questions. It's really difficult to do that. We've, we've used electronic means times 10 what we ever did before. Probably need to continue doing that. That does not still replicate the face-to-face, -face, you know, when somebody in a in a setting can raise a hand and stand up and tell you that something's messed up or you for, or doesn't make any sense to us. That's there's powerful when you're in the same room. It's just you can get a better read. You can sense more than you can through a flat screen TV. So I'll be glad when the restrictions, when the protocols are gone. I, I, I think the my, my belief is the more senior you get, the worse listener you are. I don't know what it is. But, <laughs> The more senior you get, the more like you got to talk, 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 because everybody needs to know what I'm thinking right now. I think we should go the other way. We should recognize the more senior you get, more important it is to listen. So the, scent, the listening part is what I probably miss the most. Uh, sir, uh, we're mindful of your time and uh, we, we, uh, we've used all of it. Um, we, uh, it's been great talking to you. We, we started out talking about your uh, November proceedings article, Marines Will Help Fight Submarines, but the conversation went far and wide from there. So uh, thank you for your insights on you know, the Marine Corps, the Naval Forces, Naval Integration, budgets, manpower, education, you name it. It's been great talking to you today. I appreciate the opportunity. I think uh, where you started this discussion was the same place I, we went with the article. 
try to get people out of their comfort zone and think in a different in a different way, think on a different level. So if today's discussion move that ball forward a little bit, I'm really grateful to the both of you for having me on. We were, we were talking before we came on air, and we know you're headed to Mikey Stadium on Saturday for the Army-Navy game. So uh, let's all say beat Army, and uh, don't, don't freeze too bad up there. I understand that's a very cold venue. Never been there, um, but it's history being made and that the game is actually being played at a service academy for the first time since World War II. So we're just grateful that the game is being played. And so thanks, sir, as a Tulane grad, for your support for the Army-Navy game. Um, one team, one fight, of course. So again, thanks for the time. You bet. Thank you all. Okay, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time. <laughs>